Welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 12. Cops Running Over If Thornside still had train tracks running through it, most people would have said that Butch Vogan grew up on the wrong side of them. And if there had ever been any train wrecks in the region, Butch's family would have qualified. His father, Cliff, had come to Thornside from the city long before Butch was born. Butch's mother messily left them when he was little a thing that Cliff never forgave her for. Butch never saw her again, and her name was never mentioned in the household. Then Cliff himself got some kind of cancer when Butch was a teenager. Butch was never sure what kind. All he remembered was his father smirking about something called his ass-ending colon. When the cancer spread to Cliff's lungs, the smirking pretty well died out, and eventually so did Cliff. He was gone by the time Butch was fourteen, leaving him in the care of his two older brothers, although it was doubtful either of them appreciated the connotations of the word care. They too drifted off eventually, and Butch had lived on his own since he was seventeen. A dozen years later, he could still be found in the precariously leaning mobile home on the island property the Vogan family had called theirs for as long as anyone could remember. Aside from the mobile home, Cliff Vogan had left his sons three things, which eventually all came to Butch. A 1992 Silverado 1500, a bit of a beater now, but still running most of the time, a Zippo lighter that still worked, and a sage piece of advice. Never let any asshole get the better of you. And Butch grew up determined not to. He didn't resent their father for leaving them the way he had. In fact, he kind of missed the old man, although over the years it had gotten harder and harder to remember much about him. His main image seemed to be of his father holding him off the ground and yelling at him. But Butch knew he probably deserved it. One of the odder behaviors that he retained from Cliff's disciplinary code was a complete inability to swear properly. His father had once been a boy scout, and the only residue of scout-like behavior that stayed in his fermented mind, like spume clinging to the inside of an empty beer glass, was an ordinance against foul language. Whatever morality he'd failed to display in the rest of his gritty existence, Cliff somehow couldn't stand the sound of his offspring spouting streams of F-words and S-words and all the other bad-letter words, like their friends did where some parents used contributions to a swearing jar to discourage this, Cliff Bogan used an old carpet beater. When Butch was eight and just discovering these words, the carpet beater got a lot of use. In fact, it could be argued that if the carpets themselves had been beaten as often as Butch, they would have been pristine. His body remembered to this day. Like a dog who won't cross an invisible fence, Butch was still incapable of saying anything stronger than hell or son of a bitch 
no matter what the circumstances. This lack of a vocal pressure valve sometimes caused his speech to get stuck in one mild swear word or another, like a bald tire on a muddy rut. Eventually, the pressure would blow, and Butch would end up going off on someone. He was a big guy with an indestructible face, and he usually came out on top. Nonetheless, as a kid, carrying the rep of leading town bully was not always a fulfilling way to live, and for a long time it was a little lonely, as it can be when you're up there at the top. Butch's savior turned out to be a guy named Bugs Baylor. In his whole life, Butch never found out what Bugs's real first name was, but this was fair enough. His own real name was Blair, because his mother had wanted to name him after her father. There was no way Cliff Vogan was going to have any son of his called Blair, however, so Butch was Butch almost from birth. Bugs and Butch had been best buddies since school days, when they used to roar around on Bugs's ATV, scaring the dumb animals on the trails, gouging cool tracks in the forest floor, and outraging pretty well anyone they could. Now Bugs was his supervisor at the pallet factory, where Butch drove the forklift. He liked the job, which was pretty easy once he'd gotten the hang of it. The trick was knowing which pallets to pick up, and which pallets were the ones that the pallets were supposed to sit on. It could get a little confusing sometimes, but Bugs had shown him the ropes. Bugs had a narrow face with a pointed chin, sharp cheekbones, and brilliant brown eyes. He had a hooked nose and stringy hair, and was skinny through the shoulders and chest, so his shirts always seemed too big, no matter how small he bought them. Bugs was maybe a little weird, and most people kept clear of him, but Butch thought he was fine when she got used to him. He had a unique sense of humor, and every once in a while he would fly off the handle. You had to learn when to duck, and in which direction. But like the forklift job, Butch mostly had this down. Bugs's family actually had some standing in the community. His father owned Baylor's Bargoon Barn, a sort of flea market on the outskirts of town that sold everything from housewares to shotgun shells, and once, even the chassis of a 1967 Dodge Dart that had sat in the barn's parking lot for years. People are so dumb they'll buy anything, Tom Baylor liked to tell the boys. Because his family was kind of well off, Bugs owned a bunch of good stuff, like a pickup that wasn't 30 years old, and an ATV, and a real quilt-lined flannel shirt from Tough Duck Clothing. Butch was only able to afford the cheap knockoff shirt, which some people called Lame Duck. But Bugs was good about these things. He'd smear the opening of your beer can with mashed-up poison ivy leaves when you were off having a piss, or tie your shoelaces together while you were passed out and then yell, Cops! But he'd never put down your clothes or your vehicle. Bugs was the one who always came up with their Friday night plans, and Butch was glad to participate. He wasn't so good at thinking up things on his own, so he was happy acting as a sidekick. They had lots of fun together. They shot up road signs, ran weekend cyclists into the ditch, and cruised up and down Water Street on Friday nights, yelling clever pickup lines at the women waiting to get into the Acorn Cinema. Sometimes Bugs and Butch just sat with their beers in their hands, gazing out over the unruly grassland of Butch's front lawn, with nothing at all in their heads. No talking. And these were some of the best times of all. 
Bugs got a kick out of how Butch never swore, no matter how provoked he was. He never made a big deal of it, though. That was the good thing about Bugs. He understood how a kid could have certain behaviors pounded into him by his old man. And it was Bugs who was sitting with him on the sloping front porch of his mobile home one Sunday morning when some idiot guy went running by in shorts and fancy shoes. The two of them were draining their third beers, trying to buzz away the hangover from the night before. The runner didn't look over at Butch's place as he passed. No one on the island ever did if they could help it. And that suited Butch fine. Look at that moron, drawled Bugs, simultaneously making a hand gesture that indicated he wanted another beer. Bugs was missing the thumb from his left hand, the result of a cannon firecracker that exploded too soon when he was a kid. But he could still hold a beer pretty well with just the four fingers. Fucking jogger. Yeah, what a potlicker, agreed Butch, passing him his beer. And he runs like a girl. Sure does, agreed Butch, wondering what a girl ran like. I passed him in Old Bailey the other day, said Bugs, indicating his black pickup with one of his surviving fingers. Old Bailey had a pair of metal testicles hanging from its rear license plate. One of them was a bit mashed and bent after Bugs had backed over a pile of cement blocks a while back. Gotta get my balls fixed, he said to his friends every chance he got. Butch desperately wanted some metal balls, too but the rust on his rear bumper was so terrible there was nowhere to safely screw them on, and he didn't want them falling off if he hit a serious bump. So he's jogging along, Bugs continued, and he's carrying a bunch of empty cups and shit like he was collecting garbage or something. So I pull over and I say, Can I take those and throw them out for you? And he says, Thanks, and gives them to me. And did you throw them out for him? Sure did. Soon as I got to the highway... Out the window they went! They both laughed about this for a few moments, and then Bugs summed up the discussion. Only thing should be out running on the road are squirrels, for I flatten them with old Bailey. He then pronounced his final thought. No use for them jogging libtards. Yeah, chimed in Butch, watching the jogger disappear around the corner. You'd never catch me wearing those things. Bugs looked at Butch for a long moment without saying anything. He did this from time to time, and sometimes Butch wondered if he was a little deaf. The moment always passed without Bugs ever saying anything, and the conversation resumed. They went on about the rest of their day as they usually did, which was mostly drinking beer. Then one morning, several months later, Butch woke to a pile of Timmy's cups on his lawn. He asked around, and a neighbor told him that the jogger guy, Chuck, had put them there. The neighbor chuckled as if he thought it was a pretty funny stunt. But no one was going to get the better of Butch Bogan, so he shoved a can of beer in his pocket and stomped down the road to Chuck's place. Chuck liked to keep whatever thoughts he had to himself. He rarely offered advice or commented on how others led their lives. During his years in EMS, he'd seen enough to know that people made all kinds of jaw-droppingly incredible lifestyle choices, and it was not his job to straighten them out. Nevertheless, one of the things that cut into Chuck's enjoyment of running every day was the amount of litter he ran past, mostly discarded coffee cups and beer cans. It was beyond him why anyone would do this. He had seen some very unbeautiful parts of life back in the city, and the idea of mistreating the beautiful countryside around him 
eluded his understanding. He started picking up the odd cup or can as he ran back across the bridge onto his island and down the road. He didn't want to get too obsessive about it. He just grabbed an item when he saw one and carried it back to his house. Down both sides of the road were drainage ditches, their travel interrupted by culverts over driveways every so often. These ditches were good targets for the cup throwers. He wasn't under any illusion that he was going to make a difference to anyone's behavior. He doubted the cup throwers ever even wondered what became of their trash after they tossed it, or that they wondered about anything at all beyond the windows of their vehicles. He picked the litter up because, if he didn't, it would lie there till the end of time, and he hated to see it there. He couldn't say exactly why, he just knew he hated it. Chuck's house was a two-bedroom bungalow at the end of a long driveway on an island in the middle of the Thorn River. There were about thirty houses on the island, nicely spaced out and separated from each other by stands of hardwood trees. Like most of the places, originally built as vacation homes but now lived in the year-round, Chuck's had a deck at the back where he could watch the river flow past, and a porch at the front where he could watch the sparse traffic that went by on the gravel road. He liked the front porch in the mornings while he cooled down from his run, and the back deck in the evenings while he drank beer. Across the road from his place was a vacant lot, forested and dark. It had apparently been bought years before, but the owners hadn't shown up the whole time Chuck had lived there. He liked to sit on his front porch and stare into the trees, letting his tingling muscles settle down and not thinking about too much. Sitting there one morning, he'd noticed that a bright red Tim Hortons cup had come to rest in the ditch in front of the vacant lot. He picked it up and added it to his haul for the day. The next morning, another bright red cup had taken its place, so Chuck grabbed it too. The following morning, there was a third. Maybe there's a new house going up, and this is from one of the construction guys, Chuck thought. He hated to pigeonhole the tradespeople who drove down the road, but it was hard to believe that an island resident would repeatedly toss trash onto their own roadway. Chuck started to think about those cups. They weren't there in the afternoon when he came home from work at Daggett's, but they were there when he went for his run the next morning, before he went to work. Someone was tossing them, one a day, into the ditch during the evening. One evening, Chuck changed his routine. He got a cooler full of beer and sat bundled up on the front porch to see if he could learn anything. He knew he wasn't going to be able to rest until he saw where the cups were coming from. So, the front porch it was. He watched as his neighbors drove past the foot of his driveway, headed home after a day's work. About seven, as the dusk was deepening into night and the air was turning really chilly, a rust-colored pickup truck, accompanied by a clattering and banging that sounded like it was dragging a tin box of old machine parts, came down the road, and a bright red cup flew out of the window and bounced into the ditch. Chuck got out of his lawn chair and walked down the driveway and across the road. He picked up the cup, which was still warm. The letters D.D. were written in white on the brown plastic lid, along with the word Bush, which may have been the cup tosser's name or the approximation of it in coffee shop ease. He thought of finding the guy's house and taking the cup to him, but the late hour and his own beery lethargy won out, and he just walked back to his porch and threw the cup into the garbage can. There was a new cup every workday, and Chuck began picking them up as he ran past the ditch. 
At the start, he just added them to his weekly garbage bag, but around March, he began saving them. He thought maybe he'd like to give them all back to their owner some day. It wasn't hard to track down where the litterer lived. A walk around the island revealed the rusty truck parked outside a tilting mobile home with a sagging porch at the far end of the road. He'd sometimes heard beer-soaked laughing coming from that porch when he ran past. His next-door neighbor told him that the owner was Butch Vogan, and that his family had lived there longer than anyone on the island. They were the kind of family, the neighbor said, that rescue dogs are rescued from. On days when the late winter snow was heavy and he couldn't run outside, Chuck would pause his Honda snowblower at the end of the driveway and go over and retrieve the cup, which lay like a brilliant red wound against the pristine white background. By April, Chuck had about fifty cups. Some nights, as he drank beer, he thought of ways he could return them to Butch. He didn't want to go knock on the guy's door and maybe find himself face to face with a shotgun, but the more he thought and the more he drank, the more he wanted to give those cups back. One Friday evening, while he was drinking beer, he had it. In the gloom of late twilight, he carefully stacked the cups and carried them down to Butch's property. He arranged them into letters on the lawn. L-I-T-T-E-R. Then it was time to go home and have another beer. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week. 